Welcome to season two of Lean Startup Company podcast series. I'm Heather McGough, co-founder of Lean Startup Company, where we share lean startup and modern management techniques to a growing community of entrepreneurs and corporate innovators. We produce webcasts, podcasts, original content, our annual Lean Startup Conference, and offer live and virtual training in the enterprise. Whether you're building a high-growth tech startup, a mobile app, a piece of hardware, working in a nonprofit, or a large bureaucratic organization, adopting Lean Startup methodology can help support continuous innovation and sustainable growth. Today's guest is Gagan Biani. Gagan is the founder and CEO of Sprig, a dine-on-demand meal service. Sprig enables anyone to get a hot, healthy meal delivered within 15 minutes. He also co-founded Udemy, an education marketplace. Between those two companies, he's led teams of over 150 employees, and his companies have raised over $170 million. He was also a growth advisor to Lyft and co-founded the Growth Hackers Conference. Goggin will be speaking at the Lean Startup Conference this November about finding product market fit. Hey, Goggin, welcome to the show. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me. Let's set context. Goggin, tell us a bit about your background, and what did you learn from your experience at both Udemy and Lyft? Totally. So about six years ago, I started my first company, Udemy, and I uh, was lucky enough, I was enrolled in the Founder Institute over that summer of 2009. And towards the end of the program, uh, Adeo Rusty, the founder of the program, was uh, was going to kick me out because I had no uh, company. <laughs> the two companies mm-hmm. I tried to start during the program both uh, essentially failed in the concept phase. And uh, I split up with a couple of co-founders, and so I was lost in looking for a new idea, and uh, just joining a company in tech was good enough for me, um, but I was lucky enough to meet the co-founders of Udemy, um, and ended up joining and working with them for the next three years to build you know, what today is the largest marketplace for online courses on the internet. Um, and the, uh, the major lessons of Udemy, which I think apply to all companies, are that during the concept phase, there are major strategic decisions that one makes um, that have lasting impact on your ability to succeed as a company. And I think many people overlook the discovery phase of a company of figuring out exactly how you're going to tackle a market and what the key sort of insights are about your market that are different from what other people think that will enable you to be, you know, much more successful than everyone else. What are the early lessons you experienced? Yeah, so uh, in both Udemy, Lyft, and and also eventually we'll talk about Sprig, um, there's a sort of overall vision that remained unchanged throughout the sort of formation of the company through to its you know, final iteration of what it looks like today. Um, but everything else, the operational details of how we would achieve that vision, changed completely. So in the case of Udemy, we were going, uh, our vision was to democratize education, to make it possible for anyone in the world to learn from anyone, and therefore increase the pool of knowledge that people had access to. And that is a bold, audacious mission, but it's also the mission of about 150 other entrepreneurs who raised capital during that five-year period that we, that we ran Udemy, um, or that we've been running Udemy. And so we're not the only ones who thought that there was an opportunity to democratize education. In fact, you know, there's probably thousands of people who had the idea. What really made Udemy successful was that in the early days, we identified three core strategic decisions that 
gave us a much longer uh, sort of uh, opportunity to build the company than anyone else. And what's interesting is that in all three of these cases, there were many, many dozens of companies that went right when we went left that did not end up making it or are today at least having trouble figuring out how to succeed. And those three decisions are first that Udemy, when we started Udemy, you know, there was a big question about whether or not we should charge for courses or whether or not the courses should be free. Um, and almost everyone at the time was doing uh, free online courses, and, and we decided to charge for courses. And it's very specific to the market. I think in every market, there's a different answer to these types of questions. But in education, we felt like the teachers or the instructors were the core constituency that we needed to solve for. So uh, in a marketplace business, you have two constituencies, supply and demand. And in, in education, we had the constituency of instructors felt the most important. And so we actually decided to charge for courses so instructors could make money. And, you know, today, tens of millions of dollars have been made on the Udemy platform by instructors, and it's a major reason why we have such a plethora of content. Um, but again, at the time, most people were going free. The second decision was to actually go about uh, having an open marketplace rather than a closed marketplace. So at Udemy, you know, today, anyone can go on Udemy and create a course. You don't have to have a special type of credential or a university background in order to do so, whereas many of our competitors have thought that, you know, curation was critical to education. And again, what's interesting about this is that while that may seem true in the normal education space, in the offline education space, the more credentialed you are, the more successful you're going to be. You know, Harvard is a more successful university than the University of Phoenix. Um, however, when you're thinking about the online space, a different approach made more sense, which was that the unique capability of online, the unique strength of online was in the ability to have thousands, hundreds of thousands of courses with no barrier to entry. Online was never going to be, and is probably for a long time, not going to be more credible than the physical world institutions that it competes with. And so it made sense to have an open marketplace where anyone could teach anything. Um, and then the third critical decision uh, was a decision to do recorded courses as opposed to live courses. So again, a similar situation, most people tried to take the classroom environment and port it online. So many, many courses, uh, many, many online course companies were doing live online education. Um, and Udemy decided to do recorded education, again, leveraging the strengths of the internet. The internet strengths are asynchronous, frictionless access to content. And um, so we leveraged those strengths and offered courses that were recorded. And the three of these things combined led to a company that today is much larger than any of the companies that were in online education during the same period uh, in, in sort of the same you know, general consumer uh, professional education space. So how big are we talking, Goggin? How big is Udemy now? Yeah, so we don't share uh, the exact numbers, but you know, we've, we've certainly um, had tens of millions of dollars that have been made on the Udemy platform and are made every year um, by instructors all over the world. And you know, we've minted dozens of, of sort of half a million, million dollar instructors who have built their entire careers and livelihoods off of Udemy, which I think is a really incredible feat. And you are also a growth advisor at Lyft. And in fact, the first time, first night we met, we shared a Lyft home from a uh, uh, Founder Institute event. 
And so I'm curious if you have any experience you want to share about your experience with us. Yeah, and Lyft is a is a great example because again, a very different market, transportation and education do not have the same dynamics and consumers have different expectations and needs in those markets. So what's interesting about Lyft is they actually started the business in the transportation space in a company called Zimride um, and pivoted into Lyft uh, you know, sort of in the summer of 2012. And um, Lyft made a number of strategic decisions that were fairly uh, bold at the time that led to significant success. The most famous of which was the idea that anyone could be a driver on Lyft and that though they had a fairly rigorous screening process and significant safety standards, it was not going to be limited by people who had access to a specific type of license, um, which if you remember at the time, Uber, um, which of course today has copied Lyft's strategy and become you know, one of the biggest companies in history, one of the fastest growing companies in history, I should say, um, you know, they uh, did not actually employ the strategy for a long time. It took them almost, almost uh, eight to ten months I, I, uh, to actually start to adopt the strategy of enabling anyone to, to be able to be a driver. And as a result of this, you know, Lyft exists in large part because of Uber's failures to respond to Lyft when Lyft was in the early days. So I think, you know, in every company, there's a different strategy that will succeed. And sorry, in every market, there's a different strategy that will succeed. And it's critical to get them right in the early days because eventually you'll you'll lose if you don't. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's switch gears a little bit. And, you know, I, I usually get home about 8 o'clock in the evening. I walk home from the office and I'm hungry. And I uh, don't cook. And my husband doesn't cook. And... <laughs> And so we are big fans of some of these on-demand services. And one of them that I really enjoy and enjoyed last night is called Sprig. And you are the co-founder of Sprig. So tell me a little bit about what inspired you to start it. Yeah, totally. So um, after three years of building Udemy, pouring my blood, sweat, and tears in it, um, what I realized is I also poured uh, my entire health down the drain and was eating um, terrible food. Like most people, I was tired and hungry when I got home from work. And, you know, after a a long day, I resorted to whatever was the most convenient option to eat. Um, And unfortunately, in America today, the most convenient option is almost certainly the worst option for you. And so just like, you know, lots of people out there, I was eating shitty uh, takeout Chinese or delivery pizza, or I was eating from the bodega down the street. And the problem with that, of course, is that, you know, the food you put in your body is such a critical component of your long-term health um, that that was was slowly um, really, I just wasn't feeling good. I wasn't in shape. I wasn't able to, you know, uh, run. I wasn't physically in uh, the the form that I wanted. And so over the next year, I actually built my entire, uh, I rebuilt my uh, diet and sort of started to eat whole foods, clean foods that were uh, mostly organic and responsibly sourced. And it completely changed my life. And so when I was at Lyft um, as a growth advisor, I was spending time sort of watching this beautiful a new economy that has today become called the sharing economy or the on-demand economy um, blossom. And during that time, I recognized that there were other opportunities that might be uh, might be ripe for the on-demand approach. Um, and so one of my best friends, I've known him since we were six years old, uh, we 
we met first on the playground in second grade and, and sort of have been, you know, good friends ever since. Um, he calls me one day and says, hey, what do you think about Lyft for food? Um, and what was amazing about that was I think within a matter of days, I called him back and said, let's do this. Let's go start this company. And within a matter of weeks, we had quit our jobs and were already sort of serving meals to customers all over San Francisco. Um, and that's sort of how the idea came about. I was reading on your website that you guys, or maybe it was one of the many articles about you guys, um, donate a, a lot of meals too. Is that something where like at the end of the day or the evening, I suppose, um, if some go unused, you bring them to local places? Uh, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, part of the spring model is that we um, prepare the meals in advance so that we can be really fast with delivery. Um, and as a result of that, we, we tend to have some waste every once in a while if we uh, mispredict. Um, and so we donate all of those meals. So we've turned something that is a challenge in our business into a positive and something that helps helps the community. Tell me about your target market and how you determine who your first customers would be. Yeah, totally. So, look, I think one of the things that's interesting about the Lean Startup Framework is that it very much focuses on a certain type of business. And it's because that's what 80% of businesses are, which is that, um, you know, most of the lore around Lean Startup talks about how you need to figure out who your customer is and then figure out what they want and how you can get it to them. Um, the thing with Sprig that's very, very different from other companies is that there was never really a credible question as to whether or not people wanted Sprig as a product. And really, we did have some investors who asked that question, but they were being foolish. Because the reality is that there's a major, there's multiple macroeconomic trends that proved that both convenience and quality were things that customers wanted, whether that's the rise of Whole Foods and Chipotle or the sort of decline in fast food sales um, or, you know, the rise of sort of organic produce writ large um, and farm-to-table cuisine. And so we knew from the get-go that our target market was going to be professionals who worked, um, who had, you know, either a single-income or dual-income households um, where uh, the, all the working, all the adults had full-time jobs. Um, and they would come home hungry and tired and, and, and want something good to eat and to feed their families. And so our demo has always been uh, sort of working uh, parents and, and working uh, young professionals. Were there problems you had to solve for before you were ready to launch? Yeah. So um, as I mentioned, most companies deal with the, the existential question of their business is, is this a product that people want? And in Sprig's case, when we actually started Sprig, we were lucky enough, this was my second company, and I had seen a third company in Lyft um, grow to you know, a decent level of success. And so I had the uh, forethought and sort of experience of learning about lean startup principles, being fairly well-educated on them. And so we actually literally wrote on a board <laughs> Um, the highest risk assumptions of our business and then slowly tackled each one of those before we launched the product. And the first most critical assumption of the business, um, and remember the assumption that we're talking about here is the assumption that has the highest chance to kill the company, but also the highest chance to be wrong. Um, and 
and the assumption for us was that uh, that we would not be able to deliver meals at this speed at a price that was going to be reasonable. So essentially, the value proposition of hot, healthy meals delivered in 15 minutes um, at a reasonable price point, you know, 10 to $15, was impossible. And um, so we spent the first sort of, I remember my last day at Lyft was a Friday, and the following Wednesday, I had my first, uh, we had our first night of service. So we literally served 40 meals to customers three days into our work, you know, our time at Sprig on the third day. Um, and the way that we did this, because we were non-technical, we ended up uh, having two, two co-founders join us. So there's four of us, and, and two of them are technical, and then two of us were not. But at the time, we only had two of us, um, and so and we were both business guys. So uh, we actually stitched together the entire system that we used to deliver meals via existing tools. So if you wanted to order from Sprint, you had to log on to Eventbrite and go and actually buy a ticket to an event on Eventbrite. But instead of a ticket, actually you were buying a meal from Sprint. And then that ticket would go to the back-end system that we had in our uh, home base uh, or our dispatch center, which was my living room. Um, and <laughs> on the living room table was a map of San Francisco with uh, six different pieces that game pieces that were different colors that denoted each driver that we had. So it's six drivers. Three of them were uh, the, the co-founders or team members of the company and friends, and then three of them were hired at TaskRabbit um, that we were using for delivery for that night. And so each car had a certain color assigned to it, and those colors were actually from uh, the game uh, game Settlers of Catan. So this was all that was lying around in my apartment was a Settlers of Catan board game. And so each of the pieces were, were denoting a different driver. And then we actually had a dispatch system, which was Google Maps um, combined with a Google spreadsheet on my computer. And so anytime an order came in, we'd look at the inventory of the driver that was nearest to the customer. We would then... Um, actually you know, dock off that inventory or knock it off that person's uh, payload, and then we would tell them, hey, you know, we'd send them a manual text via, from my personal cell phone saying, your next order is here, you know, your estimated ETA is this, and then we'd send a customer the thank you for ordering text uh, saying, hey, uh, thank you for ordering Sprig. Um, actually, at the time, the company was called Fresh, so thank you for ordering Fresh. Uh, your meal is on its way. It's going to be there in, you know, 12 minutes. And then we would move the Sellers of Gatan piece over to the next destination. So we didn't have real-time dispatch. We kind of just, like, you know, followed the car around as it, as it made its deliveries. And then the, the driver would text us a confirmation when the order had arrived. Um, and, uh, and then we'd, we'd do the next dispatch. Well, I, I can attest to the pricing issue because I, I probably have tried every service there is out there, and um, I've noticed their prices going up and going up. Uh, and last night when I ordered from Sprig, I got the, I think it was called the Madras Curry Lentil Cakes with Coconut Yam, and uh, it arrived hot, and it was 10 bucks. so that was pretty awesome. Now, tell me, Goggin, what companies or other Lean Startup examples did you reference to help you solve some of the problems you encountered, if, if any? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that there were lean startup companies that I particularly were was embodying. Not that there aren't ones, but just that I, really most of my education in the lean startup was not 
sort of like dedicated to Sprig. It was well before Sprig had started, and I was fairly well versed in the principles before we started Sprig. But we did look to lots of other on-demand companies and, and sort of lifted what we thought from them. And I think one of the things people uh, should do way more often is, um, I think everyone obsesses over competitors in Silicon Valley. It's, it's, it's a common theme. But what's amazing is how few times people actually look at their competitors and say, wow, you're doing something better than me. I'm going to copy you. And, you know, at Sprig, we tend to be today the leaders in a lot of the innovation that we've done. So, you know, we were kind of the first ones to popularize healthy and organic meals. We were the first ones to popularize the uh, – we were not the first ones to popularize the delivery time, but I think we're certainly the most popular today. Uh, the, the fast delivery uh, was certainly, you know, one of, the, one of the major ones to sort of focus on uh, – on, on a price point that was more, you know, sub $15. Um, but a lot of the innovation, especially the operational model, especially the fact that it arrived hot, was from watching other companies in the space and using them as our own lean startup experiment. So we basically could go and watch and tear down another company, you know, whether it was a delivery company that delivered food from restaurants or whether it was a company that sent cold meals to your door that you have to microwave or whatever, and we test them out. We talk to other people and customers of those products, and that was a really clever way to get free customer research on other potential avenues the model could go. And so when we finally landed on this idea of making all the food in-house, of delivering food that was hot, um, and delivering food that was healthy, which were three core strategic decisions that Sprig made early on, um, we didn't just have to, we didn't get all that research via primary means, uh, in other words, testing it ourselves, we also got a lot of that research by watching other companies and talking to customers about the other food products that they order and, and eat. Now, I think earlier I may, I may have heard you mention a pivot, but can you tell us about some of the pivots you made after you launched the, the product? Yeah, so actually we did not make almost any pivots after we launched the product. But in the six months between the time where we came up with the idea and launched the product, we made major changes to our operational model. And um, the two biggest changes that we made during that time. So there are three core strategic decisions at Sprig, right? Healthy is one of them. And, you know, healthy at Sprig is, is a very unique definition. We do not believe in, you know, we do certainly provide calorie information and macronutrient information such as carbs and protein and, and fat content. And that's critical for those people who are more strictly watching their diet. But our core belief at Sprig is just eat whole grains, eat great quality produce and meats, um, and don't eat too much of it. And if, if, those, if you follow those rules, then you'll eat healthy. And so at Sprig, you know, we, sorry, I, hope, I didn't mean whole grains, I meant whole foods, right? So eat whole foods, eat um, in moderate quantities, um, and also eat good quality food. Uh, and if you do that, you'll be healthy and, and happy. And so uh, that decision was made before we even started Sprig. And it was validated very much by by customer interviews where we talked to customers about what their pain points were in in day-to-day -day food uh, and dining. Um, but the second two decisions were actually made over the six months between the, the first test and the time we launched Sprig. And, and one of them was the decision to, uh, to, to actually own the kitchen ourselves. So 
when we first started Sprig, it was a marketplace. It was called Fresh at the time, and it was a marketplace. Any chef could go on, on, on Fresh and could offer their goods or services for that night, um, their food, and we would deliver that food quickly to customers, um, and we'd feature a different chef every, every day. And, you know, as, as we built the business, we realized, and as we started to work with all these different chefs, we realized that most chefs are, first of all, not very good, right? And so there's a high, high level of talent required to actually be able to make 100, 200, 300 meals at a quality and consistency that's, that's, that's good, um, that people like. But the second thing we realized is that the price point um, of having a marketplace of chefs was never going to be as affordable as the cost of making it yourself. So if you own all the production and you have a chef in-house, um, then you can have major economies of scale that you can pass on to your customers. So you can give a customer a product for 10 to $12 that normally would cost 20 to $30 at a restaurant or from a personal chef. And so these were lessons that we learned just by doing our original experiments. And eventually, I remember after we closed our seed round, you know, Battery Ventures invested in our investor, Brian O'Malley. Uh, we had our first meeting literally two days after the seed round closed. And we told him point blank, like, hey, we're, we're changing the entire company. Instead of a marketplace with no fixed assets and, you know, very low uh, sort of upfront costs, we're actually going to go rent a kitchen and hire a chef. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, credit to Brian, he didn't even flinch. You know, he was, you know, he's a, an amazing investor who has a lot of patience and, and trust in us. And, uh, you know, so we ended up building the company that way. And then the second decision was actually hot food. So if you know, there are other companies in the prepared food space, whether it's Whole Foods or other startups, who actually ask your, the customer to microwave their food at their door. Um, and actually, what's interesting is Sprig, you know, when Sprig was fresh, we did that too. So we delivered food that was cold and refrigerated, and then you'd get it, and you'd, you'd pop it in the oven or in the microwave, and you'd heat it up. And what's fascinating about Sprig is that nobody, not a single customer, really said, like, well, you know, it would really be nice if it was hot. Um, which you would expect now that that's what a customer would say, but actually most customers are just like, this is awesome. We love Fresh. It's amazing. We can't wait. When are you going to be open? That was what most customers were saying. And what happened, though, was that we slowly asked them more about how they were thinking about Sprig, what they were doing instead, what types of food offerings they were had. And we were looking at other companies in the space, and, and there was a company um, that, you know, that actually was delivering hot food. And you know, and in this time frame, 10 to 15 minutes, and, and we thought, you know, gosh, are we really going to launch this company and make people microwave their food? Like, it's clearly a step that bothers people, even though in the initial data, nobody's talking about it. If you hear them talk in more detail about their, their fresh experience, they clearly did not love the microwave, and they had trouble, and it was a major friction point. And, you know, on the flip side, delivering hot food is more expensive, and it's much more difficult. It's actually a lot of work, and it's why other companies have shied away from delivering hot food is because they want to preserve margins and profit in their business. Um, but at Sprig, we don't believe in sacrificing customer value for profit um, and margin. We believe in enhancing customer value and still having a profitable business. And so we are willing, we always have an adage at Sprig, we say, we're willing to do the hard work so the customer doesn't have to. Um, 
And so we embarked on this journey, which frankly has, has been very difficult at times, to actually figure out how to make food that tastes good for delivery and that delivers well, hot, and ready to eat. And um, throughout that process, you know, we, before we launched, we ended up making that decision. And I think the fact that we were fast, you know, our average delivery time is 15 to 20 minutes in San Francisco, and the fact that we arrive hot and ready to eat um, has been core to our ability to sort of succeed um, in, in the market. I feel like you've kind of been touching on this. Um, but in, in considering those operational changes, you know, what are some of the challenges you faced with a business that, you know, is scaling so was scaling so quickly and, and how did you solve them? Yeah, I mean, so it it's it's definitely interesting because, you know, there was a time not too long ago where almost every company, save for Amazon probably, maybe one or two other big comp uh, you know, startups, but save for Amazon stayed completely away from anything in the real world. So, you know, the big hits of the last generation of tech companies, whether it's uh, Google or Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, um, you know, or, or even eBay, all did not actually interact with the real world at all. And, they, and so uh, they have a very different set of challenges. When you're in the real world, uh, when, you're, when you're dealing with digital uh, goods, as soon as you make a change to a line of code, that change is permanent. There's nothing, there's no force preventing you from, uh, from, from reversing what you've done. So if you go and make, you know, a change to uh, a landing page and it starts to convert better, all of a sudden you have better conversion rates across the board. Um, and it's the kind of this powerful thing of software always staying in the same state that you left it in. Well, physical world operations don't do that. In fact, physical world operations always degrade into chaos. So if you build a physical world operation like a kitchen or a delivery network, at any given moment, if you let it go and don't keep a vigilant eye on it, it will start to uh, cause, have, have problems and sort of create chaos. And we learned that the hard way many, many times over. And so as we were building Sprig, every time we would scale and grow, um, we would have to refactor our operations to deal with the new aspect of scale. So when you're going from, you know, 10, 20 meals a day when we were testing Sprig to 50 to 100 meals a day to hundreds or thousands of meals a day that we're doing today, you know, each time, each order of magnitude, we actually had to completely rethink some part of our operations, whether that was the delivery uh, model, whether it was the uh, algorithm that that managed where drivers would go, um, whether it was the hub that distributed it, whether it was the kitchen and how we were going to make more food out of the same facility. Um, and so we've made many operational changes to deal with the, the speed of growth. So one of the best things about being in San Francisco, I think, is getting to try out all these new products and services. And because they actually um, want feedback and you actually see changes happen pretty quickly. And so I'm curious, how do you continuously improve, being as big as you are now, um, how do you continuously improve the, the product and offer food items that your customers will like? 
Yeah, I mean, one of the amazing things about Sprig vis-a-vis, you know, our main competitors at Sprig, and I wouldn't call them serious competitors, we're friendly with all of these folks, but our restaurants, right? To some extent, if you're a Sprig customer, you're choosing to order Sprig over going to the grocery store or over um, getting takeout from some restaurant down the street. And so uh, one of the advantages that Sprig has that those restaurants don't have, it's just the sheer amount of data and access to customer information that we have. And so it's most certainly a big part of our strategy to invest in continual research and development of our um, customer base so that we can make sure that we like, you know, we're up to date on what they what they like and need. And so built into the product, of course, are already some very core feedback mechanisms, such as every single meal that we serve gets rated um, and customers have the opportunity to rate just like you do in Uber and Lyft. Um, and that's a consistent feedback mechanism that allows us to track us over time. We also track NPS score. Um, we also do focus groups with customers, which actually we're, we're going to do some pretty soon. We uh, often have team members who do ride-alongs and actually spend time in the field um, talking to servers and customers, um, and we hire various sort of firms to come in and actually do third-party research as well. So we, we supplement the natural feedback loop that's in the app that's already sort of building a, uh, a quality sort of trove of information for us with a, another set of more formalized tools that allow us to have a picture of what our customers want at any given time. And of course, we're never uh, perfect, but this allows us to really understand um, our market a lot better. So as the, as the founder of Sprig, you know, what are some of the decisions you made along the way that helped shape the company? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I think the biggest decision that Sprig has faced Day that has not really been talked about much publicly is the decision to stay committed to the quality of ingredients that we do. Um, I think, you know, it's really easy, especially sort of, you know, post-Series A as we were preparing for our Series B, we were trying to, uh, trying to build some efficiencies in the business and trying to prove that it was economically viable. And it was very easy to potentially sacrifice on ingredient quality because it's one of the easiest ways that you can cut costs. And if you look at our competitors in the on-demand food space, we know because we talk to our purveyors who, who, you know, who broker our deals with our farms um, that they have all pretty much gone to some level of conventional produce and meats. Um, and so I think one of the core strategic decisions that Sprig has made that actually our customers don't talk about that much, but I think they appreciate. Um, it's not, and so the point being that actually it's not something that customers are like, oh, I will not eat you if you don't have organic produce, or I will not eat Sprig if you don't have sustainable meats. In fact, I think that most of them today, uh, or at least a good percentage of them today, don't explicitly have that need. But this is an example of not following lean startup methodology to a T and actually being willing to take a stand on certain issues. And our belief is that, you know, the way that produce is farmed in the United States is actually bad for your health and that it's actually bad to eat produce that has antibiotics and, and sort of like, uh, you know, some GMOs we, we like, some we don't. But the point is that we have a stance on every type of produce and, and meat that's out there and we're... Um, constantly trying to focus on giving you the best product possible. And I think 
today, uh, that is proving to be um, a successful strategy because I think we're a brand that has real integrity with our customers, um, whereas a lot of other companies, I think, would would have a lot more skepticism um, from their customer base. And so we can do, uh, we can charge slightly more perhaps, though Sprig is incredibly affordable because of the economies of scale, we can charge slightly more for our product, uh, partially because people understand the value of, of what Sprig has to offer. Yeah, it was really nice, you know, being able to see and read exactly where all the ingredients were coming from. Um, all right, time for one last question. Uh, tell us, you know, what are some of the things um, we should keep in mind or our audience should keep in mind when thinking about product market fit um, that they can learn from your experience? Yeah, so I think the number one lesson of uh, the early stages of companies is to eliminate your ego. So what you heard from me throughout this uh, talk and sort of my general startup philosophy is that many people, when they start a company, they're really fixated on their ideas. And, and because of this fixation around, like, this is my idea, I'm so proud of it, I'm excited to share it with the world, which, by the way, is amazing. I'm certainly proud of the things that I've done, and I hope I hope everyone sort of brings to work that level of pride. But you shouldn't bring that level of pride into your decision making, and so you have to look at every decision you make and constantly evaluate its its its, its merits. And so at Sprig, you know, we and it, I think Udemy, Lyft, and Sprig are all great examples of this. We're constantly willing to learn and improve and evaluate what we're doing. So that way, in the early days, you know, one of the things I think that's amazing about Sprig is we literally followed the Lean Startup methodology to a T and got to a product that had astronomical growth um, as a result of the right um, sort of confluence of key market product market fit decisions. And I think a large part of that is because when we started Sprig, you know, we had no ego about whether our idea was the right idea. We were just looking for the right idea and willing to hear what our customers were saying, what our competitors were doing, what the you know investors or other stakeholders might be saying, and at least look at those things with a fresh pair of eyes and say, okay, is that do we actually believe that to be true or do we think that that's just one person's opinion? And when we actually start to you know find that certain things seem to be proving themselves true, we followed those uh, those lessons and, and built the company that way. I think that's a really core lesson for all entrepreneurs is to eliminate your ego and remember that the goal is to win, not to be right. All right. Eliminate the ego. Got it. <laughs> Goggin, thanks so much for being with us today. And we sure do look forward to hearing you talk more at our conference in this uh, this November. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Heather. Thanks to our guest, Gagan Biani. I'm Heather McGough from Lean Startup Company. Our team looks forward to having you join us for upcoming podcasts and webcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Lean Startup, register for our flagship Lean Startup Conference, or follow our blog. Visit leanstartup.co for more information.